imagine this concept that you go to Deer Valley one year, you take lessons, you're a level six skier, you're working on bumps, you rented a length 173 ski, you like to dine on the mountain. If you go to Deer Valley the next year, you better believe they're going to use that information to offer you a more personalized experience. But what if you go to Aspen the next year? They're an icon partner, but they're owned by a different company. Should the guests be able to take that profile with them someday? Right now, it's considered that the resort owns that data. But doesn't the guests themselves have some claim on that data? Can they take it with them, kind of like your chart from your doctor? Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. I'm going to talk the tech side of skiing today. First, please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. The podcast is just a small part of the storm. There is an article that accompanies this podcast that has additional context on our conversation. And I am churning out breaking news, reporting, analysis, and reflections on the world of lift serve skiing all year long. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter instead. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. I know a lot of you listening are leading large teams of lift maintenance pros, and I know you want them to be the best. And that is why I am so pumped about my new partner. This episode of the Storm Skiing Podcast is sponsored by CORE, Oregon State University's Center for the Outdoor Recreation Economy, the industry's premier workforce development partner. Is your ski resort ready for a second consecutive winter of revenge, tourism, and record guests? Are you looking to upgrade ski lift mechanic skills at your resort, but challenged by the cost and time to train your team? Oregon State's core online ski lift maintenance training gives new and experienced lift mechanics the skills to become the technicians your resort needs. This self-paced, interactive, hybrid online training covers lift systems and operations, safety standards, preventative maintenance, and full NSAA Level 1 requirements. It is the most affordable lift maintenance training in the industry and includes industry expert sessions, on-site assessments, and all course materials. Sign up your lift maintenance team at beave.es backslash storm so they know we sent you. That's B-E-A-V dot E-S backslash storm. And of course, I have more to say about Mount Gazette. I've been hammering you with this for more than two years now, but no matter what I say, it is not going to whack you on the head as hard as Mountain Gazette when this work of art drops onto your doorstep. Issue 198 worked its way to me recently, and it is just awesome. First to cover, Seth Morrison crushing pile captured by photographer Scott Markowitz. That shot tags an enormous spread on one of the greatest skiers of all time. And then, did you know that there are 22 ski areas in Greece? There are some amazing picks to prove it, too. Then, writer and snowboarder Dave Zook gives us a deep meditation on what it means to compete in, and ultimately to retire from, the competitive freeride circuit. And the photo profile of Trevor Kinnison, who is living an inspirational life in a sit-ski after a spinal cord injury, is absolutely unforgettable. This thing takes some left turns, too. We explore nudist lifestyle, Saudi Arabia, and the tragic end to the life of cyclist Maya Wilson. 
but you really do have to see Mountain Gazette to understand exactly how good it is. My man Mike Rogie, who had the vision to bring Mountain Gazette back from the dead two years ago, laid this out beautifully in the latest issue when he wrote, quote, A firm belief developed for me recently. Folks need to see Mountain Gazette in real life. Then and only then do they get it, end quote. Look, that's real. This thing is incredible. It is the best outdoor print mag going, and you can get in on it by subscribing at mountaingazette.com. And while you're there, check out Mountain Gazette's new lineup of mugs, hats, t-shirts, and hoodies. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 113, Aspenware CEO Rob Clark. When I started skiing, everything I knew about a ski area came from a brochure. Stats, location, lift ticket prices, everything. i just show up and hope for the best. If I was feeling ambitious, I could call the snow phone in advance to at least confirm that the ski area was open. And that was it. There was no commercial internet, no smartphones, no social media. And this wasn't even that long ago. The world has changed a hell of a lot since the mid-1990s when I took my first turns as a teenager in the Midwest. Now, everything is different, obviously. But just because the world changes doesn't mean every industry keeps up. Skiing has been quick to change in some ways and slower in others. But little by little, this old school business is figuring out how best to exist in a connected world. And that can mean a lot of things from how we access information to how we navigate to the hill. But ultimately, the best use of tech in skiing will achieve this. How do skiers get onto the hill as quickly and easily as possible with minimal roadblocks and the least amount of time wasted standing in lines along the way? That's the mission of Aspenware, whose tagline is modernize your mountain. How are they doing that? Today, we are going to find out. Quick disclaimer before we get to that. Aspenware is a storm skiing newsletter and podcast sponsor. This podcast conversation, however was not part of, and is not related to that paid partnership. Aspenware had no editorial control over or approval of any content in this podcast, and that is true of any guest on the Storm Skiing Podcast. This is independent ski journalism, and I do not do sponsored content. However, tech and its increasingly prominent place in our ski day is a big part of the lift-served skiing experience, and I was really curious to see what one of the leading companies in this space was up to. Let's go. My guest today has been the CEO of Aspenware since April 2020. Aspenware has spent more than two decades providing innovative technology solutions to the ski industry. The company's products and services help its resort clients streamline back office systems and provide their skiers and other guests with e-commerce and on-mountain digital experiences. Earlier this year, Altera Mountain Company and Aspen Skiing Company formed a joint venture to acquire Aspenware, which remains a standalone business. The company's more than 60 clients include Altera Mountain Company, Aspen Skiing Company, Powdercore, Point Resorts, Telluride, and Jackson Hole. He has worked at Aspenware for nearly eight years and also spent three years on the product sales and services team at Vail Resorts. Rob Clark is my guest. 
Rob, welcome to the storm. I am really looking forward to exploring the tech side of skiing with you today. How are you doing on this Monday morning? Doing great. I'm joining you from my house in New Hampshire. We got a little dusting of snow this morning. First time this year, actually. So that's pretty exciting. And I'm honestly just really excited to be here. I've been reading and listening since almost the beginning. So super excited to be here. Honestly, don't know how you do it with a full-time job on the side. Seems to me like this moved kind of beyond a, a hobby a long time ago. So. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's no kidding, Rob. It, it definitely takes a lot of time. Luckily, I do have some help. My wife, who is a TV editor, also edits the podcast. Yeah. So I have a real pro on my team, which <laughs> helps a lot. You know, I actually woke up to a little dusting of snow here in New York City, and I was going to ask how much you got up in New England. So it sounds like just about the same amount as us. I think in, I was reading on open snow this morning, I think Western Mass and Eastern New York around Albany picked up around eight inches, nice. which is pretty exciting. Nice. And then I think we have a storm rolling in this weekend from what I've been seeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm So I'm on the coast in New Hampshire. I can actually see the ocean through the trees right now because the leaves are off the trees. So a little, little different situation <laughs> than up in the mountains here. But we got a dusting, which is good to see. And it's finally felt cold in the air, which is kind of what we need. You know, one thing I wanted to say, I think before we start, we, we need to agree on some kind of safe word. If I get too techie or too nerdy, <laughs> You need to say something to me and jolt me back to reality. Is that a deal? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that that's a cool. deal. I, I, I'm pretty consistent with saying, okay, you know, I'm too dumb for that. Can you explain that to me like I'm, in, you know, eight years old? <laughs> so, all right. So, so New Hampshire, that's interesting because I think when we first connected, you were out west. So what prompted the move back east and, and where were you before? Yeah. So um, I moved in May. So I've actually only been here a little bit. Um, my wife is from New Hampshire and all the all our families up here. We have a one and a half year old at home. So um, I lived in Colorado actually mm. for 17 years, 16 and a half, almost 17 years before this. So I knew the move was coming eventually, but the stars kind of just aligned to, to make it happen so we could be near family earlier this year. So how are you thinking about that from a skiing point of view? How familiar are you with New England skiing? I'm getting familiar with it. So we, we have a lot of um, some past lives. I worked with a lot of New England resorts. Asimar has a lot of New England customers. So I um, spent a lot of time kind of touring and getting out there. I didn't grow up skiing in New England. Um, I actually grew up in Ohio. So I was, I was born in Ohio about 20, 25 minutes south of uh, Boston Mills Brandywine in Akron, Ohio. It's actually on the Epic Pass mm -hmm. now. Yeah, but I, but I, but my first time skiing was actually in Western New York at Peak and Peak. That was the first place I ever went. Spent my summers in southwest of Buffalo, New York. So my first time skiing was going up to Peak and Peak. And for me, like going to a, going to a big resort for me, going to a fun, exciting resort when I was younger was going to Holiday Valley, <laughs> uh, which is just south yeah. of Buffalo. Really, really cool, yeah. cool resort. Ellicottville is a great town, and they have a really great lift system. So that was that was the, the early, early exposure with skiing. But New England skiing is again something I've been exposed through through work. But I think it's going to be a really cool place to. to raise a kid and really introduce skiing to him. So I'm excited about it for that, for sure. Yeah, Holiday Valley is no joke. They get 200 inches of snow a year, and they're actually one of the busiest ski resorts in the Northeast. Coastal New Hampshire, it's a little bit of a haul. What Have you scoped it out and tried to figure out what could be your home mountain, where you're going to bring that kid yeah, up? Yeah, so the in-laws are in Maine, um, near Portland. And so they're actually about an hour south of Sunday River. 
um, and really close to Pleasant Mountain, formerly Shawnee. So that's that's going to be really close to them. I think we'll go there a lot. Loon's not too far from here, so I could see that. Last winter, we made it to Bretton Woods, going to Sugarbush this winter. So I'm, I'm going to I'm going to make the rounds, but home will probably be Sunday River. I'm thinking. Yeah, Sunday River is uh, you know you'll you'll get the true East Coast experience there. It's big, it's busy. They have tremendous snowmaking. They have a zillion lifts and almost as many people. So, so I, you know, and good people working there and running oh, yeah. that place, as I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you've had a, a, a chance to, uh, to work with that crew up there. So, you know, you grew up in Ohio, I grew up in Michigan, so I'm familiar with the Midwest skiing angst and always knowing there's something bigger and better somewhere else. So uh, yeah, I'd imagine you put in, put in your time at Boston Mills Brandywine and it sounds like you eventually made your way West. What, drew you to the West and how did you like living out there? Like I said, kind of started in the the Midwest area there when I was younger. In high school, college, I made a couple trips out West. I think my first Western ski trip was maybe like my senior year in high school. I went to Telluride, kind of the first Western trip I made, made a couple trips to Vail, made a trip to Utah. So got some exposure to skiing there. Um, but I actually, it's funny though, the reason I moved out West was it was, it was kind of unplanned. So Funny thing about my background is I was actually a chemistry major in college. Uh, I thought I was going to med school. I took the MCAT. Um, and when I graduated from my undergrad, kind of wanted to, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So I was kind of looking to find myself. And I went to a Vail recruiting event at Ohio State in Columbus. And oh, no so they kind of toured around trying to find people like me, essentially, met with a recruiter there and got a job and moved to Vail for the winter. So moved there for the winter. I expected to be there just for that winter. I actually moved back for that first summer. My first job out there that first winter was I was a I was actually a call center agent. Um, I worked in the resort information and activity center, which was based in Lion's Head and Vail. It was kind of like the call center for where people called in for questions and things like that. There was a big booking call center in Broomfield, but this was the 970 Ski Vale, I think was the number. And you called us if you had questions and all that stuff about your trip. But it rolled up to the product sales and services department who was responsible for all the sales, tickets, passes, lessons, wholesale groups, and things like that. So anyways, I, I went and did that job for a winter. I moved back for the summer, but then I was actually recruited back by my manager at the time. Uh, her name's Rebecca McDonald. She's the current head of all product sales for, for Vail Resorts. She had just been promoted for that winter after my first winter, and she now was overseeing all the product sales in the Lion's Head base area and now had the Lion's Head ticket office um, newly under her purview. She invited me back to be the supervisor. So I moved back that second winter to be the supervisor of the Lion's Head ticket office, and I stayed in Colorado for, for 17 years after that. So that's a good long run. And Vail is a place in particular that has changed a lot, both the mountain and the town and the way that skiers access and use the mountain and the sort of volume of folks it's handling. So just talk about what Vail was like when you arrived yep. and how it evolved over that 17 years. So I was only there for about five seasons, four or five years at the time, but I lived in Vail for actually for 10 years. I'll tell you about kind of where I went after that. I think the first thing I would say is, again, when I moved back there as that supervisor of the ticket office, that was a really good job and cool opportunity to kind of get your feet under you in the ski industry for a 23-year-old. So we had about 15 to 20 um, employees in that office. It was honestly a really big business on its own. That was before e-commerce 
really was a huge thing. It, it was out there. You could buy a ticket online and stuff like that. It's before the Epic Pass. So everyone was still buying their tickets and a lot of them when they came in person or at least had to pick them up when they came in person. So we were busy on a Saturday. So I think the Lions said ticket office at that time, we had eight ticket windows outside. We had three kiosks where you could just buy a one-day ticket. We had four sales desks inside. Then the adult ski school was right next door and would take over to help sell tickets at like 10 a.m. once all the, the students were out in their lessons. So it was crazy. It was jam-packed and rocking, and you just really got your feet under you and kind of learned how to manage people, learned about ski area operations, learned about product sales and all that sort of stuff. And it was cool too, because we got to move around a little bit. I'm into other departments. So I got experience with ski school sales, with wholesale sales, with call center and all that. So really good opportunity for somebody who's kind of that young to honestly get kind of a lot of responsibility and, and really learn a lot. I think your original questions was like, was how things changed? Like, what, what did I see over time? So again, when I first joined, it was before the Epic Pass. I actually got the first whiff of the epic pass like six months before it came out because i remember i was standing in the pass office i wasn't in the decision making process at that point i just kind of ran the the staff in the in the ticket office so i didn't know about the super secret things that were coming out but i remember a woman came in who was a longtime pass holder and she, she told us about this survey she just got from Vail, and the survey was asking what price would you pay for an unlimited pass to Vail? would you pay 480 580 680, 780. And at that time, I think it was 1950 or something like that for a full season pass. So we were like, what survey did you get? <laughs> so, that, <laughs> so that was the first time I got the whiff of that. But it was really cool to be, honestly be a part of it. We in the, in the ticket office found out maybe like a week before when it was initially announced. And it was kind of the shock of the price point. And we didn't fully understand the model and the business reason behind it at that time. But we needed to learn how to support it and answer questions and sell it and all that sort of stuff. I mean, also at the same time, we were there for the rollout of RFID, which came out at the same time. RFID, they tested with employees the year before that. And then they rolled it out when the Epic Pass came out um, at that exact same time. So it was kind of cool to be exposed to that. So again, Vail was kind of a leader in that transition from the traditional 47 points of sale open um, in the morning to moving towards the pass where people don't actually have to book their individual days and then also moving towards e-commerce. And um, it was kind of cool to be there at that inflection point and really witness that firsthand. So you're there's this very exciting moment for Vail Resorts and I'd imagine that all of that customer service experience that you had really put you in tune with the sorts of pain points that skiers were running into as customers, right? Not as skiers, not, not you know, running into bad grooming on the mountain or a lift closed or whatever, but that all the things they have to do before they even get on the hill. So, so take us through where you went after Vail Resorts and how that experience there may have informed how you approached your career and where you decided to focus. Good segue. So in working in the ticket office and being involved in all those other the ski school sales and all that sort of stuff, really what happened is I became a super user of the software. Their software at that time, it was called RPOS, Resort Point of Sale. Um, it was a really complex kind of management software that sold the tickets, lessons, did all the fulfillment on the back end, all the accounting, had the customer database and all that. 
sort of stuff. And I became just an absolute kind of expert through and through on that product. And then my next move there was actually, I was connected through the director of product sales at the time. His name was Eric Simon. He previously had worked at a company called RTP, or Resort Technology Partners. And RTP was based, their headquarters were just right down the road from Vail and Avon at the base of Beaver Creek. Through that, I got referred through Eric and got referred over there. And I joined RTP, the company that makes the software. So I became a super user of the software at Vail. And I moved over to the company that makes the software, RTP. I initially started in RTP, I think for about six months, I was a support agent just at the help desk. So we were the people that other ski resorts would call if they had questions or something wasn't working or if they needed guidance on how to configure something. So I did that for about six months and then I quickly moved into into implementation. So implementation, that was really kind of the heyday, the boom times of RTP back then. And we were um, implementing many, many new resorts um, that were moving over to that software. And in the implementation team, our job was to, after a resort signed or after they added a new module or something like that, it was either to meet with them remotely or usually to travel on site to the resort, spend time working with their teams, training them on the software, implementing the software in the way that's going to work best for their resort. It's not just like in, pop the CD-ROM in the drive and double click the, the, the install file. It was a really long <laughs> process where you met with the accounting team and the operations team and the marketing team. And you had a lot of back and forth. And it was really all about optimization of kind of an enterprise platform that was meant to run a complicated business like a ski resort. So I probably worked with over 50 resorts and probably traveled to 30 something. When I worked at RTP and was doing implementation, I actually, I probably led myself a dozen implementations of the entire suite of RTP. And uh, it was pretty cool. I got to travel all around North America. I went to Europe. I traveled to Australia a bunch. I even implemented a resort in Azerbaijan. <laughs> in the in the Caucasus okay. Mountains. Wow. They actually oh, translated so cool. RTP into Azeri, which is a Cyrillic language, which doesn't even look like English. Amazing. So that was that was pretty wild. Wow. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I just got to really see it all, you know, and like learn the ins, ins and outs. And I learned a lot about how Vail operated, which was a pretty fine-tuned machine there. But I also learned about how other resorts operated, which aren't, weren't always all fine-tuned machines. And they had a lot of different ways of doing things. So it was just, just a lot of drinking from the fire hose and just really learning how to, number one, understand the operations, but also work with ski resort veterans who maybe have worked in that ski school for 30 years. They really like their whiteboard where they track who the instructors are assigned to and what private lessons they're on. And now we're trying to implement a software solution. And Again, these people really like their dry erase marker and their, and their whiteboard. And we learned after time how to talk to those people and how to get them on board. So it was really, really kind of unique experience that allowed me to see a lot of different aspects of the industry. I mean, it sounds awesome. I, I think most folks listening to this, and, and I have a lot of people who listen to this who are, who are either in the ski industry or want to be in the ski industry, maybe they're younger and coming up. And I think that that's the sort of life that they envision, right? Like a lot of travel, a lot of exploration, a lot of novelty, a lot of adventure. And it sounded like that company had some momentum, but you didn't end up spending your career there. You ended up at Aspenware. So why did you decide to make that transition? What was appealing to you about Aspenware? Yeah. So I made the transition. So I think I worked at RTP until December of 2014. I actually had intended to take a little time off. I wanted to take a little break and do some skiing. It was like the heart of the winter. Uh, but I actually got recruited to Aspenware before I left RTP and joined them. I got two weeks off, I think, <laughs> for Christmas and New Year's okay. and then started my new job at Aspenware. <laughs> 
So Aspenware is a, it's an interesting company. So maybe I can tell you just a little bit about kind of the history of Aspenware when they were founded and how they got into skiing and then how I ended up there. So first of all, so Aspenware has been around since 2001 um, is when they were founded. Um, They were founded by Rich Peterson, who was kind of the the founding member. There's a few other founders as well. Rich was actually the majority of owner of Aspenware all the way up through this past May when we sold the company. Sure, we'll get to that in a little bit. Really owe a lot to him, honestly. He had a lot of faith in me, someone who would never run a company. Also helped sell the company at the end, but I'm still not sure I can really ever repay that faith that he had in me. Um, But anyways, Aspenware started back in 2001, and they initially, they had a SharePoint product, which is a Microsoft (laughs) software um, that they sold. But really, they were consultants at heart. Aspenware was always a Microsoft shop, and they did really, really kind of heavy lifting consulting, really custom software development, really tough integrations. They weren't who you went to to build your WordPress site or your marketing site or anything like that, but really, really heavy software development. Uh, They mostly worked in Colorado, but in other places as well. They worked with really big companies in Colorado too. So some of the big projects they did is they, Aero.com, Aero Electronics is actually the largest company that's based in Colorado. I'm asking where built their checkout many years ago on their e-commerce site. Worked with the U.S. Olympic Committee down in Colorado Springs. They actually built the sites that did athlete registration for the summer and winter games. Another cool example is they, Inspirato is kind of a high-end luxury travel company that's based in Denver and Aspenware was involved and kind of building their software. Aspenware got into the ski industry and started getting involved in ski in the late 2000s. And they were mostly doing consulting and custom development work with Vail. So the, the main project they worked on at Vail is they actually came in on year two of the Epic Mix social engagement app Vail had. So another company built it in year one, which is great. They got it off the ground and all that sort of stuff. And Aspenware came in and kind of, once they had learned a lot about how it was working that first year, kind of rewrote a lot of the back end so that it could work at scale and be performant, things like that. And Aspenware for many years had 15 or more people that would actually go to Broomfield every day and then kind of be embedded with their team. They worked on Epic Mix all the way up through when they added photos, I think it was. And they also worked on the first version of Guest Connect, which is actually the, the name of Vale's new custom point of sale that they've built in-house. Aspenware was involved in the first version of that. So the way I ended up there is in late 2014, Aspenware was working kind of through those connections. The group of ski resorts who was trying to figure out the future of technology for those resorts. Aspenware had actually made a pitch for a, kind of a new platform that they were going to build in the future. And there's a lot of interest in that. I and mean, then a lot of the ski resorts were very interested, but Aspenware was a consulting company. They didn't build software that they then sold or licensed and maintained. They would just build custom software, hand it off to the customer, and then it was the customer's job to maintain that going forward. So if they were going to build software for the ski industry, but who was going to maintain it? Who was going to own it? Who was going to be responsible for um, for growing it in the future? Aspenware just wasn't set up that way. I was actually brought in kind of right when they were figuring that out, frankly. <laughs> I was brought in to be kind of a ski expert who kind of understood all those things that I learned at Bale and learned at RTP. I was just really brought in to add value where I could. So it was, a again, a really cool company that was talking about bringing really modern technology solutions to ski, which is something you didn't hear about as much. And uh, yeah, it just sounded like something that I wanted to be a part of. So that's actually when I made the move down to Denver. So I lived in Vail for the entire time that I worked at Vail and the entire time I worked at RTP. Um, and then I made the move in early 2015 down to Denver to work at Aspenware, who was based in Denver. So, so this is interesting. I just assumed because of the name Aspenware that it was some dude living in Aspen who <laughs> had this idea and spun it up. What can you tell us about the name? Is that just a coincidence that this ended up being a 
company that's immersed in the ski industry and, and in fact is now partly owned by Aspen Skiing Company. Just give us whatever background you can on that piece of it. Yeah, it actually is a coincidence and it's caused more than enough confusion <laughs> um, over the years, especially recently. <laughs> so Aspen is named not after the place, but actually after the tree. So the original okay. name of the company when it was founded was Aspen Leaf Software Company. And then it was renamed, I think in 2008 or 2009. But really what it was is it was kind of an homage to I don't know if you've ever heard about the, like an Aspen Grove is actually one of the largest organisms on the world. It's an interconnected root structure underneath the ground. And each tree is actually part of that larger root system. And that's kind of a metaphor for the way that technology is built. You kind of these different software systems that are inter interconnected behind the scenes. And then they kind of sprout up as these different systems when the users interact with them. So really it was a kind of an homage to the kind of software that they built and thought that the Aspen trees and the Aspen Grove were a good metaphor for that. Yeah, no, that's actually really perfect. So, all right, you were hired to be a ski expert. And, and I think that for the, all that great explanation you give, I think that's the piece that's going to jump out at people. And I do want to get back into Aspenware and its evolution in a second. But let's just pause because this is a, a, as I said, a really cool job where you're traveling around. And I realize now you have a one and a half year old. So, so maybe your world looks a little bit different than it did a couple years ago. But just indulge us here. What does a winter look like for you? And as you're traveling around, do you get a chance to ski? Do you get a chance to test the product and, 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 you know, take a few runs on the mountain or maybe more than a few runs? And even going back to your time avail, I imagine if you're selling tickets all morning, that means that maybe in the afternoon you get to get out and make a few turns. So, so what does winter look like for you? And, and let's set aside the New Hampshire problem for a moment and, and I'll let you deal with that. But, but you know, your last decade and a half, what is that, what does your typical winter look like? Yeah. I mean, definitely need to test the product. My typical winter's yeah. changed. So when I first moved to Vail, again, when I was 22, the goal at that time, when all your friends were the people who also just moved there because you showed up not knowing anyone, we actually worked four 10-hour shifts when I worked there. And the goal was to get Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday off. That was like the ideal schedule when you first moved there so you could ski and have the whole mountain to yourself. Eventually, I still worked four 10s for a while. And eventually, you wanted to switch to Sunday, Monday, Tuesday because a lot of your friends had Monday through Friday jobs and you wanted to ski with some of your friends on Sunday. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday became the ideal. But I think I was getting somewhere between 60 and 80 days of winter when I lived in Bale. When I moved to RTP, I worked Monday through Friday there. So got a little less time on the hill, but they had a powder rule that if it had snowed eight inches, you could go up until 11 or noon or so. <laughs> so either up to Beaver <laughs> Creek or up to Bale. So you could get out there long, unless you have customer facing meeting or something like that. So, so certainly when I lived up in Bale, I got a lot of days. When I first moved to Denver, I still got a lot as well. I would go up almost every weekend. I think we're started to change a little bit was with COVID, frankly. So with COVID, that was kind of a weird end of that winter. I was actually, when that first happened, I was on a, I was at Aspenware, obviously, because I, been there for a long time now. And um, I was on a trip to Big Sky and Jackson Hole. Um, and I was actually in Jackson Hole. And I was I remember being at dinner with a bunch of them on like March 10th or 9th or something like that. And us just being like, wait a minute, is this serious? What's going on here? Like what's really <laughs> happening? And so much change in those next few days. But but anyways, it was COVID kind of changed it, you know. So that winter then, my wife was pregnant that 2020, 20, 21 winter. So she wasn't able to ski that winter. So I made a lot of just day trips up to A Basin, just drove home after that. But other than that, yeah, I definitely get to ski when I'm, when I'm out there traveling. Well, I'll be down in Aspen in March. Um, I try to visit customers as much as I can. I did a whole Northeast tour last winter and I need to figure out kind of what customers customer trips I'm going to make this year. But 
always try to find time for at least a morning or a few runs or even a whole day if you can tack it on and I'll always prioritize that for sure. <laughs> Love it. So you'll you'll make the most of your winter, I'm oh, sure, yeah. regardless of where you're located day to day. All right. So so you arrive at Aspenware and they bring you in to do this very specific thing and bring the the company into the ski industry or the ski industry into the company, however you want to frame it. So what did that look like? What did, what did that job look like? Because that, that's, that's big. That's a lot of responsibility. And, and like you said, the, the CEO there at the time put a lot of faith in you. And it, and it sounds like he kind of had to because he didn't have this skill set and knowledge you did. But that's a lot of responsibility for you to carry around. So take us through this, yep. your, your time when you started Aspenware and just how you, how you approach this. Because I, I think it's, you know, when you, when you lay out a big challenge like that it's easy to get overwhelmed by the enormity of it rather than just taking it step by step and trying to build up so how did you do it yeah first couple of years were interesting so like i said i was recruited over there when asmer was working with this group of resorts that was trying to figure out their tech path forward couldn't figure out the commercial structure and who would maintain that software ongoing so actually a few months after i started believe it or not, that kind of fizzled out <laughs> with those oh, resorts. Okay. So I actually did a little bit of non-ski consulting just for a few months there. But then what I started doing is I opened up my Rolodex. You know, I got to know so many resorts when I was working at RTP and we just looked for opportunities to do small and medium projects for those resorts that provided value for them. Little custom integrations here, little custom applications and things like that here. And just started doing a lot in ski and getting our name out there. We also did a lot of consulting, kind of like, what is the ideal guest experience? How can technology improve that ideal guest experience? I remember we did a really cool project. It was a joint project with Palisades of Squaw Valley at the time, Jackson Hole and Whistler. Back when Whistler was independent, the three of those resorts got together and we did a big customer journey mapping kind of in partnership that Aspenware led. And we did those kinds of things and tried to be kind of thought leaders out there. But then really like when things changed and what happened is we were kind of behind the scenes in 2016 working on an e-commerce product. We were doing it in partnership with a certain resort. And then it was kind of crazy. So what happened is in early 2017, I think it was actually, I remember the dates. It was February 15th, 2017. And a contact from a resort that I'd been talking to for a while, actually out in Bear Valley, California, called me and said, hey, Rob, our passes go on sale in a month. You know that e-commerce site we've been talking about? Can you have it ready to sell our passes in a month? We said, <laughs> all right, giddy up, let's go. And we kind of worked nights and weekends and all night. We had a small team that was working on it actually at the time. Um, we got those Bear Valley season passes out on March 15th, or give or take a few days, and got that live. So that was actually the first resort that went live. Our second resort that went live that year on August 1st, 2017, I remember these dates because I tell the story a lot, was, was Jackson Hole. So again, Jackson, we had done some consulting projects, like I mentioned with them. And uh, that was actually the first kind of custom user interface we built. Bear Valley, it was kind of the audit. We built our software on, a, on an open source e-commerce platform. We didn't build every line of code from scratch. That's kind of one of our secrets. We use software where we can and just customize it. But for Bear Valley, it was kind of the out of the box. It was this retail e-commerce site. We used the out of the box user interface. But for Jackson, we built a custom user interface on top. And there's still some kind of relics in the current product of that. As soon as Jackson Hole went live and I could email people and send them a link to that site and say, you see that? Do you want that? That's when people started answering the phone. <laughs> so that fall, we signed Copper, we signed Killington, got a couple other big resorts that fall, and the rest was history there. So it's really funny, though, because uh, that was when this almost unintentional slash intentional pivot happened in the company. Like I said, we were a consulting company, so we did buy the hour 
custom software development. Our customers actually own the intellectual property. They actually own the software that we built. Those first two contracts, that Bear Valley and Jackson Hole contract, were actually written like that. So technically, Bear Valley owned their solution and Jackson Hole owned their solution. And when, once we realized that Copper wanted it and Killington wanted it and all these other resorts wanted it, we said, wait a minute, we might have something here. Uh, this might be something uh, that other people might want. So we had to renegotiate the contracts with Bear Valley and Jackson Hole. We did what's called an IP reassignment where they actually assigned the intellectual property back to us so we could lease it out. And so, I mean, that's kind of how it all got started. And fast forward today, 60 resorts later, that was kind of the, the genesis of the, the big change at Aspenware. And we, from that point on, really switched to a what, what we call a product company. So where we build software that we own, and then we license out to the resorts in order to use. And it's our job to maintain it, to grow it, to service it, um, and enhance it over time. So you've really found this niche in the market where you have this old line business and this business that's run by people who are really good at this one particular thing. And that one particular thing is giving all of us skiers who are listening to this podcast, the miracle of consistent skiable surface for, you know, five, six months a year, depending on where you are in the country, which, you know, is, is a lot harder than I probably assumed that it was before I started doing this podcast, but I now appreciate all of the nuances. But just because you're good at that and the outdoor part of it doesn't mean that you necessarily have a knack for the tech part of it. And that's fine. Not everyone does. And all businesses have needed to modernize in the past couple of decades because consumers and consumer behavior has just changed so much and what they expect. So you go to Aspenware's website, which which is not necessarily a consumer-facing website, right? It's, it's really for your resort partners. But if you happen to go to that website, it says at the top, and I, and I thought this was very a very powerful tagline or, or phrase or whatever you want to call it, and it's modernize your mountain. So in the simplest possible terms, Rob, wh- what does it mean? What do you mean by modernize your mountain? I think it means different things to who your audience is. It means different things to the actual internal operations, to the to the people at the ski resort, and it means a different thing to the consumer. So for the internal operations team, it's really all about a few things. Number one, it's about kind of knowing their customer. So how can you have a system that can track all of the customers in one place so you can understand people's behaviors, offer them personalized service, things like that. Um, and then also... Just the ability to sell everything in advance to allow people to book things in advance. It just allows resorts to plan in a way and understand what's coming um, in a way that they haven't been able to before. So, you know, if people have to book online, which is something that COVID actually brought about, that you know how many people are, other than pass holders, you know how many people are going to come on Saturday and some resorts are less pass holders, some are more, but you can plan your staffing, you can plan your openings based on that, you can plan how that you prepare the snow surface and things like that based on that. So again, technology to the internal operations just allows you to know the customer better and prepare for them a lot better. Uh, for consumers, uh, what does it mean to modernize your mountain for consumers? It's all about removing frictions. I think you talked about that before, but how do we eliminate everything that stands in the guest's way of getting on the lift or into their activity. So overall, I I mean, I really believe that technology is one of the things out there that has the biggest opportunities to truly make a delta in the ski guest experience. Ski trips are really hard. They're really difficult, especially for a family. You have a family of four, you're maybe flying there or definitely driving there. You got to sort out your lodging. You got to figure out where to park. You need to figure out how to get your tickets. You're enrolling maybe yourself, maybe your kids in ski school. Susie's got to be there at 845. Johnny's got to be there at 930. 
Who's picking them up? You got to get rentals in hand. Where do you have to be and when? It's way easier just to go to the beach. You just need flip-flops, a towel, and a cooler, you know? So right. um, it's really hard. And so how can we, how can technology step in and remove those frictions is what, what we really think about. I mean, our goal is to book 99% of everything online. Lodging, tickets, passes, lessons, rentals, activities, summer, winter, all seasons. We want to uh, be able to book everything online so that the guests and the resort can kind of reap those benefits that I just talked about. And online booking experience is key. We can talk about that. We also have to think about what happens after they click buy. One of the analogies I've always liked to give over the years, especially when I was doing like sales calls and stuff like that, is like, like I said, I lived in Denver for a while and I traveled a bunch. Even when I lived in Vail, I didn't often fly out of the Eagle Airport. I flew down to Denver. And out of Denver, it's United or Southwest or the two hubs. And again, I flew United Airlines most of the time because I went inter international a lot. And United actually made a really good progress, I think, in that time on their consumer-facing tech. They had a, a good mobile app. They had good website where you can make bookings. They had good kiosks that were easy to use. I think they've also really done done a good job at like notifications and keeping their customers informed. You know if your flight's delayed. You know if uh, your flight's checking in and you have to run over to the gate and things like that. But if you go up to the counter and you kind of peer over the counter and look at the screen that that agent's using, it looks like Microsoft DOS from 1992. So really, <laughs> that's what we tried to bring to ski. That's what we tried to do. We focus on the consumer-facing technology, the websites, the online check-in, the kiosks. So we support mobile apps and things like that, things that really focus on the customer experience and the customer actually directly interacts with. Uh, we try to do the same thing that United Airlines did for the ski industry, frankly. And how hard of a sell has that been? You know, I, I think that some get it right away. It sounded like Jackson was an early adopter, Bear Valley. That's that's interesting because that's a local scary in California that, that most folks outside the area probably aren't familiar with. But s some places just they, for whatever reason, are into it and, and others resist. It, it sounds like you had a good vision and you were able to draw from other industries and say, okay, this is, you know, you take airlines, that's another kind of old school business, right? Like airplanes aren't new. And we, we did this for years and years and years without tech, but the tech can make the experience a lot better, right? For both the person flying and for the people who are working for the airline. So how hard was that sales pitch for skiing? How much resistance did you meet and how were you able to overcome that? The way, the, the way I think about it is for a while, ski was actually kind of ahead of its time for a little bit. So RTP, I talked a lot about them a little bit. So RTP was actually formed out of Vail. So essentially what was happening is back then, all the systems were kind of this mishmash of like food and beverage systems and stuff like that. And the story that I've told, that I've been told, I obviously wasn't there, is some folks were like sitting around and saying, like at the end of the day, they didn't even know how many people skied. Like an accountant had to go and make a bunch of spreadsheets essentially and figure out how many people skied. So they said, how nice would it be to have a system that can do all of that, that we can run live reports as we go throughout the day, understand how many people are out on the mountain and start to gain other kinds of inferences. So systems like RTP, and there is a few others as well, were actually kind of born out of the industry and built by the industry itself. And in a way, Ski kind of 
initially back in the day was kind of an early adopter of technology. But over time, it, it actually becomes hard to maintain and grow those huge systems. You end up with these really large custom systems that try to do absolutely everything. And it's really tricky. And some of those softwares for this kind of the small ski industry, it becomes hard to maintain. And some of the, the aspects of that software look the way they did today, 10, 15, or even, even 20 years ago. But today, when we think about it and we try to convince people and kind of get people on board with the modern technology, one of the things that we see is we actually see a trend towards what we call best of free. So again, in the past, you installed RTP and it did absolutely everything. It did your ticketing, it did your ski school, did your lessons, did your retail, did your food and beverage. And again, the issue with that is they're very good at everything, but it's it often ends up not being great at anything, you know, when you do that. So, so what a lot of resorts look at when we talk about best of breed is you say, you know what, I just want to put Square in for food and beverage. It's simple. People can learn it in an hour. It's really easy to set up. It's really easy to take payment. So that's an example of kind of tiptoeing um, into best of breed. You can do the same in retail. You can do the same in lodging. People use special property management systems to manage their hotels. There's companies that are doing that in ski and ride school. There's companies that do that in access control for tickets and passes and rental and all that sort of stuff. And so one of the things that Asimer has done really well is working with others, with partners. We partner with a lot of those folks out there. Um, and we like to kind of think of ourselves ourselves as kind of the best of breed for the guest facing side of the technology. And also we're really good at those, those backend integrations. So when I showcase Aspen or when I try to make that case, the easy place you start is with features, right? Like all the things you can do. And we have a lot of those and that's kind of the easy place to start. But what we find out that over time and after you spend a lot of time with existing and prospective customers, it's actually more important to focus on the value that you bring and really kind of why you're doing it. So if people believe in where you're headed and in your vision as a technology vendor, it's almost as important or more important than what you actually offer and what you can do today. The way I think about this to give you kind of an example is I'm, I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek, if you've heard of him. So he wrote the book, Start With Why. Um, is a really uh, famous book in the business industry. And he's famous for this concept that he has called the golden circle. It's kind of how you talk about companies and what they do. And his, his phrase is that most companies know what they do, but they don't know why they do it. He talks about how great companies, they start by talking about their why, why they do it, and then how they do it, and then what they do. And they talk about it in that order. He cites Apple is a really great example of that. Apple's why is think different, challenge the status quo. That's the first thing they always talk about in their ads. And their what at the end of the line is they build computers and digital consumer devices. So that kind of inspires people and gets people behind your vision. And that's how we like to talk about Asmr. So when we think about Asmr, we think about what our why is. We actually describe our why is it's to facilitate easy and frictionless experiences that create lifelong memories in the mountains. Um, we're the facilitator um, of a lot of those experiences with the technology solutions we, we provide. Our how is that we like to craft digital solutions that are highly functional, easy to use, and that enable guests to book and manage their season and trip all in one place. And our what is we build world-class commerce, guest registration, and trip management software. So sticking to that message, talking about our vision, talking about our why, living it every day, I think that's what kind of sets us apart and helps us make that value kind of buying decision easier for our customers. Yeah, when you talk about that frictionless experience, that that is so key because I, as you can imagine, I, I have a lot of friends that don't ski and they, they come to me as like the person to tell them about skiing, <laughs> right? For obvious reasons. And I almost don't even know what to tell them a lot of times. Luckily, I living in New York, Big Snow has given me an easy now. I say, just go to Big Snow. <laughs> they will take care of everything for you. They're going to give you the gear. They're going to give you the I spent that for the first time in September. Super cool. <laughs> it, it, 
it, yeah, it, it's awesome. And it, it's it's such a good idea. And I really hope that I had Joe Hessian on this podcast a few yeah. months ago. And he has really big ambitions. I've also had um, John Emery, the CEO of Aspenware, or I'm sorry, AspenX yep. on this podcast. And between the two of them, I think they have an opportunity to be the biggest growth engine in the history of skiing because they're going to put these things in places like Miami and Houston and Atlanta and places where people wouldn't necessarily grow up skiing and they now can. Um, however, I, other, other than that, I, I have the, a really hard time envisioning this process because of the gear and the clothes and the, and the, the lift ticket and the lines and the crowds. And of course, most people can only go on weekends and, and on and on and on. But what you're doing is helping to simplify that experience. And you have this really cool ad campaign for ski areas. Close your ticket windows. You don't need them. Talk about that. How did you come up with that? How effective has it been? And and how does that relate back to everything you were just telling me about this frictionless experience? Yeah, well, like a lot of things in the last few years, honestly, it, it came out of COVID, um, essentially, is really where that was launched from. So like I said, I was up at Jackson, we flew back, I think on Thursday, March 12th, right, as all this was happening. I actually looked through my emails that I sent to the company the other day um, when I was preparing for this. And um, I think on like the morning of Thursday, March 12th, we said, hey, you should probably stay home and all that sort of stuff. And then I think the morning of March 13th, we closed the office. So cr- crazy, crazy fast there. But for, so for us, it was really scary at first, but then we actually got busier than we've ever gotten as a company. Resorts immediately knew that they were going to have to turn to tech to get through the next year. Um, We needed guests to be able to get out of their cars and head straight to the lift. No stopping in a line in the base area. No stopping in a ticket window. No lining up in a ski school office to fill out paperwork and things like that. What we started to do is we started to think about what are all the reasons that a guest has to stop at a window or stop in an office in the base area. And in, in April... May 2020, we were meeting with our resorts and trying to figure those out and trying to figure out how we can help for the next winter. So for a long time, there's been this feature in a lot of software called RFID Reload. That's where you have the plastic card and you can add your next ticket to the card you already have rather than having to pick up a new one. The the, the numbers are actually shockingly low, (laughs) the people that actually reload those. Um, But when we looked at it, we're like, why do people have to stop at a window? Why do people have to stop at a base area? The window is about picking up tickets because they're purchasing special products that couldn't be purchased online. So vouchers, they have like tickets with their lodging or they bought wholesale tickets that have to be picked up at the window, employee discounts, buddy tickets, friends and family, you name it, all those kind of special tickets and also just printing any ticket was the main reason people had to stop in. So um, for, for stopping at the window, we just built a bunch of features to try to address that for that fall. We built a feature called Online Voucher Redemption, where you can type in your voucher number or you can email it to a friend and click a button and redeem really any voucher online. So a buddy ticket, ski with a friend, any kind of discount. Uh, we partnered with a company called ShearID um, that does online student and military validation. So you can validate those kind of discount tickets online and you don't have to stop in and show an ID. And then we also worked with other vendors to make it easier to pick up a ticket or pass without even having to go to a sales desk. And we can talk about that in a little bit. Stopping into an office like ski school or rental was really all about filling out paperwork. So 
book um, your ski school lesson online and you'd have to stop in the office and you'd have to sign a waiver. You'd have to fill out little Johnny's drug allergies or that he was allergic to peanut butter and who was authorized to pick him up. And they'll be there between four and 5 p.m. And it was all that. So what we did to solve that is we built a new product that we actually called Arrival. Just like the airline story I told before, this was also kind of an honestly inspired by the airline industry. You know, when you, when you go on a flight, 24 hours before your flight, you get a message, go check in online. And when you go check in, you're not just saying, hey, I'll be there. They're all, they're offering you a bunch of stuff. If you're traveling international, you can complete your passport info. You can change your seat. You can upgrade to first class. You can check your baggage. You can get prepared so that you don't have to do all that stuff when you get to the office. So we essentially built that same thing for Ski. Called it Arrival, basically an online check-in app. So whether it's a day before, five days before, resorts can configure it how they want. Somebody has a trip coming up and they haven't completed all their information They'll get an email or get an SMS that's going to notify them that, hey, complete the stuff online or you're going to have a bad time when you show up. Um, and that allows them to find waivers, upload their kids' ski school information, complete rental info, upload photos, gives them a QR code to pick up their tickets and stuff like that. So anyways, that was the problem we were trying to solve. But what we did, you talked about this, close your ticket windows, you don't need them. What we did is we actually hired, his name is Senin, Senin Gorman. Sorry if I'm pronouncing that first name incorrectly. He's pretty big in the ski industry. He uh, draws um, a lot of the, a lot of trail maps. He does a lot of kids fun maps and he does those cool ski tikis. And um, if you've ever seen that at all, we hired him to essentially make this cartoon ad campaign. It was pretty cool. We had a ticket office, the ticket window in the foreground with a bunch of just like characters and lines. There was a guy with his skis backwards, another guy had upside down goggles, another guy had a hundred sticky wickets on his hip, you know, although I do have some nostalgia for that. <laughs> but up by the lift, we had this family who had just booked online on Aspenware and were speeding right past that line and hopping right on the lift. So anyways, that was kind of how we told the story about close your ticket windows. And honestly, resorts have, and it's been a really huge success. So so again, I led an NSAA panel, um, National Ski Areas Association, um, kind of a led, a led an expert panel during COVID when they did some of their conferences online. And I remember Kevin Mitchell, who at the time was the GM of Homewood out in Lake Tahoe. He's just newly the, the GM of Powder Mountain um, in Utah. That was just you know, a couple of weeks ago. Congrats, Kevin. But he was on the panel and he showed a picture of these ticket pickup kiosks in front of his ticket windows. And then the ticket windows had a closed sign on them. And he said, those will never open again. I Just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to John Lilly. He's the CIO of Aspen. And he talked about how a few years ago when they used to first open, They'd have a line out of the pass office down the blocks, people stopping in to pick up their passes, get their photos taken. So this year I walked in there on opening day and there's like two or three people in the office. And then Eldora is a really good story. They're a customer as well. They fully embraced arrival last winter for photo capture on season passes. So anybody who is missing a photo, um, it used to, they used to get about like a 70% capture rate because you have to have a photo in order to print your pass on file. And they used to get about a 70% capture rate. They installed Arrival, fully embraced it last winter, and they had a 99% capture rate. And so because of that, Powder is releasing it at all their resorts. So you really don't need the ticket window, frankly. It's, um, it's a valuable real estate, better suited for a retail shop or a tiki bar. So the benefits are clear. And we've obviously, with COVID, seen this huge surge toward, toward technology. There are, However, still some resorts, some ski areas out there. And I know this because I go to a lot of small ski areas and I'll pick one Holiday Mountain, which is close to New York City, but no one knows about it. And no one knows about it because it's basically a phantom. You can't buy tickets online. It's really hard to determine 
what their hours are or get an accurate snow report. If you call, you get this really passive aggressive answering machine <laughs> sort of bossing you around and telling you these certain things to do. And it's a very dysfunctional place. And, and you know, that's my job. And I'll say that and that that's fine. But you know, obviously there's still some resistance. What, what sorts of resistance are you meeting? And what is the story you tell to try to get these folks to see that, you know, th- th- this is something that's going to be good for them? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a few things when you talk about resistance. I mean, one's just a fear of complexity, you know, and kind of just what they're what they're taking on. Some resorts have one IT guy or gal who works part-time on weekends. You know, and um, <laughs> so there's a, obviously some concern there from those resorts. But what we do, I mean, the cloud is really what's what solved that and SaaS. So software is a service solution. So where all you're doing is interacting with a website and you don't have to maintain servers and you don't have to maintain all that stuff on the back end. So as long as you have a good Internet connection, which isn't always a sure thing, <laughs> uh, then cloud based yeah. <laughs> solutions are, are the answer to that. Often, more than not, we're actually, when we're in the sales process of the resort, we're often usually just competing against them doing nothing, frankly. They're going to go with Asimware or they're just going to keep doing what they've always been doing. Like that's what we often compete against. So in that case, it's about value, it's about return on investment. If we can show them that they're going to sell X more tickets, their guests are going to be that much more happy. They're going to be that much more likely to return all of those sorts of things. If we can show them with all the data that we have, eventually you can start to kind of turn that tide. Some sales cycles are quick. Sometimes a resort calls you up on December 1st. We actually had this happen a few times and they're like, oh my God, what we're doing is not working. Christmas is coming up. Help. (laughs) What, What can you do for me? Other resorts, you talk to them for a year, two years, something like that, before they finally make the decision. And that's okay. Um, we're used to it. So, but yeah, it's just, it's all about value. It's all about that return on that investment. And we just have so much data now and so much, so many references, frankly, at other ski resorts that we can connect them to that that's, that's kind of the main method you use to help them work through that resistance. I mean, I definitely understand what you're saying about competing against nothing. I, I imagine... What you're also competing against, though, is all of the other very expensive pieces of a ski area, right? So chairlifts being probably the most obvious. And I was, I was just to pick one example, Wyndham President Chip Siemens told me that the new high-speed quad that they're putting in, which, by the way, rises all of 300 vertical feet, it's a beginner quad, <laughs> that that lift was going to cost them $5 million, mm-hmm. right? And Wyndham can afford that. That's fine. They're, they're a well-capitalized place, and they're on the Icon Pass. But uh, for, for a lot of ski areas... Any sort of investment at all is a reach and you have snowmaking and you have lodge and you have daily grooming and labor and all these other things. So compare tech to those other costs and sort of how you justify this, because I, I think that it's it can be hard to understand and appreciate the necessity of technology for a business that operates outside and, and is sort of supposed to be an escape from technology. Yeah, I mean, cost is a big one that we've faced over the years and it was something we faced at RTP you know and even in the past just like what the appetite was to spend on technology and it's definitely changing I'll come back to that but I mean historically so again we had all this investment you know with uh, resorts and a few other companies building their own technology like I talked about in the 90s and in the early 2000s but honestly kind of since then and until recently tech was really historically under invested in in ski uh, there's a story and i normally name names when i tell this story i'm not going to name names now but there was uh um, an example of a resort i was familiar with in the past that 
did literally hundreds of millions of dollars in sales through, I probably figure out who it is, but did hundreds of millions of dollars in, in sales through a technology solution. And they paid just over a hundred thousand dollars a year to the, to the vendor. Basically is that vendor wanted to have that resort as one of their customers, wanted to have that big logo on their masthead. And they were willing to take that sacrifice. But what it did is it kind of it, that by the way is like 0.00 something percent of those sales, which is not, not sustainable, but it almost set this like expectation that that's what tech costs. And it's not, I mean, ski is a niche. It's a pretty small industry. When you look at the, the, the grand scheme of things, the golf industry is much, much bigger than ski. Um, and the ski industry has much, much more complex requirements. Kind of like I was alluding to before the ski resorts really it's like 20 businesses in one. You have a ticketing business and you have a ski and ride school business and a retail business and a food and beverage business and a rental business and a activity business and on and on and on. And that creates really high demands on that software. So you have really high demands and not a lot of supply because the industries can't really support it from the vendors. And that actually leads to more costly solutions if you want to have robust solutions. I've had a lot of chance opportunities in my, my current job to spend a lot of time with a lot of resort GMs and presidents and owners and things like that. And one of my lines that I've been saying for years now is I've been kind of on this crusade and I say I'm on a mission to get technology to be considered in the same breath as lifts and snowmaking. Um, at your financial planning meetings every year, because I think it's that important in the future. And resorts really are starting, to, it's starting to change. And I think one of the biggest examples of that is the acquisition of Aspenware, frankly. Just doing that is like showing that resorts really are starting to get serious about technology and about the investment that it needs, uh, that it needs to take it to the next level. And I think we're kind of in the, the midst or the, the beginning periods of a revolution in that area. Yeah, I think you're right, Robin. It's one of the reasons why I invited you onto the podcast, because this isn't something I write about a lot, mostly because I don't have the expertise to do so, and I'm, and I'm more focused on the Hill, right? But I have written about it a few times, particularly at the start of COVID. And the way I framed this was tech is the new snowmaking. And what I mean by that is if you go back to kind of like the mid 70s to the mid 90s, there was a huge weed out, right? We used to have seven or 800 ski areas. Now we're down to 473, depending on it, on how you, how you count them. And a lot of them probably weren't built in great places to begin with, but the ones that survived almost without exception are the ones that made these big investments in snowmaking. And my, my theory is that the resorts that are going to survive the next wave of extinctions, I don't think it'll be as big of a wave because there's just not that many resorts to, to die as there were in the 70s. But I think it's going to be the ones, the ones that survive are going to be the ones that invest in technology because consumers just don't, aren't going to find the ones <laughs> that aren't linked into the technology mm -hmm. because they're going to search ski areas near me. And then when they find them, they're going to say tickets. And I'll, I'll give you one example is, Turner Mountain in Montana. Great hill, you know, community hill, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. It, last I checked, and this, and this could be wrong, and I'll double check that before I publish this podcast, but you couldn't buy a ticket online to Turner, so you're probably going to go to Whitefish or you're going to go to Lookout Pass, right? Because these, these are plugged into the grid, so to speak. So just going back to this sort of headline in this way that I'm thinking about it as a writer who analyzes the ski industry, tech is the new snowmaking. What's your reaction to that? Am I oversimplifying this? Are there nuances I'm missing here? Or do you think as a kind of general theory, this is something that you can see playing out as we look into the decades ahead? 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure resorts are going to go out of business tomorrow if they don't change it. I think there's still like a soul of skiing, you know, that draw people to those kinds of resorts. I certainly like to ski at resorts like that from time to time. But well, maybe, maybe it won't make them go out of business tomorrow. I mean, it'll, it'll certainly be missing a huge opportunity that's actually really easy to solve now <laughs> with all the people out there and all the vendors out there and the cloud-based solutions and things like that. I mean, I'm sure you've heard the sentiment that every company anymore is a tech company. Most companies have a tech leader, like a CIO or a CTO on the executive leadership team anymore. It's pretty different than what it used to be in the past. And ski really is no different. Ski is a tech industry now, and it needs to be because there's really two things that tech can solve that can help with this issue. One is it can allow ski to stay top of mind to their guests and our marketing, social, videos, stoke, if you will, things like that. And also it's, it's needed to make it as easy as possible for them to participate, you know, removing those frictions and our booking technology, mobile apps. Tech is honestly the answer to both of those. And there's companies like Astonware and other ones that are out there that their job is to make it easy for those resorts to solve it. So honestly, those resorts need to pick up the phone and give somebody a call because there's there's answers out there. <laughs> it seems like this is a problem more of an individual resort just making a choice to try to sit that out, right? You made this really interesting point to me when we were going back and forth before this podcast in that a skier who has a bad experience at, say, Breckenridge, they're not going to associate that with Vail, right? Because we're close to this. We know that Vail owns Breckenridge. You know, does the average skier who's skiing at Breckenridge know that Vail Resorts owns that mountain? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. They may be vaguely aware of it, but but they're going to say that wasn't a bad Vail experience. That was a bad ski experience. So talk about that a little bit and how the industry should be thinking about modernization as a whole. I think that's right. I don't think any other ski companies outside of Vail get any joy out of epic lift lines, frankly. <laughs> um, on, on, the, on the whole Breckenridge note, I mean, ski areas, real competitors, if you really think about it from the 30,000 foot view and take a step back, it's not other ski resorts, it's cruises and Disney and the television doing nothing. You know, that's really the real competitors <laughs> that are out there. So, and when you, when you look at like, again, the kind of why, um, the, they should be thinking like how the resort, the, the industry should be thinking about tech adoption. I think they need to first just think about the complexity of the industry in itself. And like, is there anything that can be done about that outside of the tech? So some of the reasons that tech is so complicated is that businesses make it so complicated. Ski resorts, yeah, they're really complicated. There are a dozen businesses and ones, like I said before, but these resorts have these unbelievably complicated product sets, for example. Some resorts that I've worked with, and a lot of resorts, believe it or not, they have over 10,000 products in their point of sale, not including retail or food. 10,000 products in their point of sale that support the tickets, lessons, rentals, activity. It's all the iterations of everything you could sell. So a one-day, two-day, three-day, adult, child, junior, a window ticket, an online ticket, a wholesale ticket, a group ticket, multiply that out and make a matrix and you end up with 10,000 products. But does it really have to be that way? Epic and Icon are an, an answer that says, hey, maybe it doesn't. But anyways, if the operations can simplify a little bit, then technology can really be, I think, one of the enablers of that experience. It should really level the experience, if you will, across the resorts. It should focus on access and Really what we need to be focused on is like, we don't want technology to accidentally become the experience itself. We want it to, again, enable the experience. We're not trying to build virtual reality, metaverse skiing in your living room. Uh, we're just trying to make it easier for, for people to get outside. <laughs> Obviously, you're telling a good story and the industry is buying in. And as you've alluded to a couple of times, and as I said in the intro, 
Aspen Skiing Company and Altera Mountain Company earlier this year formed a joint venture to acquire Aspen, which, which I think is an interesting approach. So just take us through this, Rob. Why did Altera and Aspen purchase Aspenware? Why did it make sense for them? And why did it make sense for you? Yeah, so the long story here and a lot of different ways to think about it, but there's a couple different ways to approach technology, right? One is the Veil approach in particular is build it all in-house, right? So they have a lot of, they have a very large tech team. They work with external consultants and all that sort of stuff. And they can build some great tech and have a really great outcome that way. I think that the reason it made sense to Aspen and Altera particularly is because it may actually re- reflect a little bit of the difference between the Epic and the Icon Pass. So the Epic, most Epic resorts, pretty much all, I think, except maybe Telluride and a few international partners are actually owned by Vail. But Icon, there's 14 resorts at Altera, but it's largely a partnership of resorts that have different ownership. Some are independent, some are owned by larger groups like Boeing and Powder. It's, I think, the the difference between building in-house and kind of building with an external company uh, may actually reflect the the structure of those passes and the structure of those companies. Most of the resorts in the Icon Pass are our customers. I think we work with, um, if you include Altera, we work with 39 or 40 of the 45 or so odd Icon Pass resorts are out there. And we want to maintain the ability for Aspenware to work with that. This being a joint venture between Aspen and Altera actually kind of ensures essentially that autonomy. We can't be folded into the IT department of Altera, folded into the IT department um, of Aspen. We don't want to do that, but joint venture structure that you were pointing out kind of ensures that autonomy, which is really, really important to us. Um, I think another reason that we like that kind of autonomy is it's, it's, it's hard to develop and build software. It's hard to do it on its own. But it's really hard to do it in an organization that's also focused on the operations of ski resorts. The ski resorts, they have to worry about is, oh, steamboats opening on Thursday. Are the networks up? Are all the computers working? Are all the ticket printers working? All that sort of stuff. That's enough to worry about, (laughs) um, even for a large organization like Altera. Um, So having that kind of isolation where we don't have to worry about that, we just have to worry about our next software release and the capabilities that are going to be available there kind of gives us an unfair advantage, if you will. I do think that certain things should be built in-house by resorts. Altera continues to build and maintain IconPass.com in-house. I believe resorts should find places where they want to differentiate, such as the marketing website, and mobile apps, things like that. But I'm not sure there's a competitive advantage in having better access control software or better accounting software, or custom accounting software. I'm not even sure there's a competitive advantage to having a different e-commerce cart or checkout as long as it's a world-class one. So resorts should, in my mind, really rely on technology vendors to provide that um, and should really focus on what differentiates them. Some of those things that I mentioned before, the things that kind of kind of make them special. And I think that's kind of how Altera and Aspen think about this. So, so, so let me ask you this. I, you know, I, I think as consumers, we might not think about this a lot, but what, what it sounds like you're doing is is a little bit like what Shopify is doing and, and you know, any business can kind of use them to facilitate their e-commerce and, and build um, their online presence. How is what you're doing different from or similar to Shopify? And why would a ski resort want to work with you rather than one of these bigger companies? That's a good question. I actually last week was having a conversation with somebody. Are we more like Shopify or more like um, Amazon? And we came up with Shopify. Right. Um, essentially, so we, again, we offer white label software, which essentially means that if you go to Jackson Hole's website and you book a ticket or book a lesson, you can't tell 
that it's Astonware. If you go to Aston's website, can't tell that it's Astonware. It looks like Aston and it looks like Jackson Hole. So that's the same thing you can kind of do in Shopify. And for these ski resorts to have a brand and have an identity and want to appear kind of a certain way and maintain a certain experience to their, their customers, that model works really well for them. And we solve all of the heavy lifting hard problems behind the scenes, you know, so the integrations to the fulfillment systems underneath to the actual system that prints the ticket and validates that it works when you go to the gate, we sell the ticket and we send that order down into that underlying system. And then we handle those integrations. We handle the payments. We handle the authentication of the customer. We handle the booking experiences and how you develop those booking experiences. It's good to have a company that eats, breathes, and sleeps thinking about technology to solve that for you. And I think that's that's really the, the real value that we offer. And then we allow a lot of customization on top so that the resort's brand um, and personality um, and kind of what they have to offer shines through. You know what this reminds me of? I worked for a long time for several years at the NBA, the National Basketball Association headquarters here in New York City. And while I was there, they made this big announcement that, hey, we are, because they had their own station, NBA TV, but they said, we are outsourcing all of the production to TNT, to Turner, because it doesn't make any sense for us to try to build up all this technology and be this best in class broadcaster when that's all TNT does. Like we're a basketball league, right? We're not going to try to pretend to be this, this, these production experts. So that was a decision they made. I, I don't know if they still do that or not. I haven't been at the NBA for about a decade now. But it reminds me a lot of that because you're, you're essentially focusing on what you're good at and making sure that the other thing that's essential to your product is going to be the best and is going to meet customer expectations. So, you know, look, looking at this from my view, it makes a lot of sense. I realize it's early. How is it going so far, this new ownership structure? How are you liking it? And, and what are you heading toward? What does the future look like? Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe what I can do is I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about kind of how it happened, and then I can tell you kind of how it, how it's going. I'm actually getting on a plane right after this to go fly out for a board meeting, so um, so it's going pretty well. It's pretty involved, but um, so essentially, like the the way this happened is it was really back in the summer of 2021. So again, the acquisition closed in May 2022 earlier this year, and we were really proud of what we'd done. I think at that time we had almost 50 customers, maybe in the upper 40s and stuff like that, and we we're really proud of what we were able to do. But we're, we're self-funded. We didn't have any outside investment. And we're totally self-funded. We actually had to structure our initial, our early contracts in a way that resorts paid us a lot up front and then less over time because we needed the cash <laughs> to be able to build the software up front. So we're really proud of what we've done, but we wanted to do so much more. And so essentially, there was really, I'll kind of tie this together. There's two people that kind of really help this happen. So the first was John Lilly, who I mentioned earlier, CIO at Aspen. And he set up an initial meeting that I had back in July, 2021. I actually flew down to Aspen and I met with a couple of members of the Crown family. So I met with uh, Tori Crown. She kind of runs the tech funds and the tech investments, and the tech arm of the Crowns. Uh, and, her, and her husband, Matt McKinney, he's ex-Uber and he has a cool new startup that's in the logistics space now. But I met with them, kind of gave them the Aspen pitch, you know, in two, three hours. Kind of yeah. told them about where we're going, what we want, where we wanted to go. Had a bunch more meetings as we went throughout the fall. And then really what happened is in February of this year, I got invited as a, obviously a plant from these initial conversations we had, but we got invited <laughs> to kind of present that same vision to the Altera executive leadership team. Obviously, Aspen and Altera related. The Crowns are hard owners of Altera and all that. 
So I came in, made our big pitch over about two hours. And the person who kind of closed the deal there was the, the, the president at the time and the new CEO of Altera, Jared Smith, former president of Ticketmaster, spent, I don't know, like 17 years there. But basically, there's a, there's a tech guy in charge now. Um, so again, Rusty Gregory, incredible, built Altera to an amazing company, really doubled any prediction that they had um, when they started out. He's since retired and uh, Jared's taken over, I think, as of this, this past August, the CEO. But he was there in the room back in February when we made that presentation and he brought up the acquisition word right there at the table, right while we were meeting. And it's really because there's a tech guy in charge now and there's a guy who's focused on tech and understands that value that tech can have. So it was really interesting. We actually had three offers to acquire Asimer at the time. Two were from private equity. One was from this kind of Aspen Altera group. And the reason we went with Aspen and Altera is we're ski industry folks. I spent my entire career in the ski industry. That's what I wanted to do. Private equity was all about how many dollars do you process through your system and how can we consolidate your payment gateway and just grow the dollars that are processed through the system. But we really wanted to take the, the solutions to that next step to really affect that guest experience in ski. And we saw that as possible through Aspen and Altera. So that's that's kind of why it happened. Go, how's it going? So, so far, so good. I mean, first of all, it's really good for the employees. That's been really great. So kind of the way it operates is it's a 50-50 joint venture. They bought 100% of the shares of Aspenware. Um, Altera owns 50%. Aspen Ski, Ski & Co. owns 50%. And first of all, it's been really good for the employees. So Altera is kind of the managing partner, if you will. We get a lot of benefits from shared services from them. So all employees get icon passes and um, Altera Mountain Company passes for employees and dependents now get Aspen access as well. We're able to get like accounting support, able to get certain HR support and stuff like that from Altera, which has really allowed us to, to level up in a lot of ways. Certain things we actually cannot get support from them on, and that's mainly actually in the IT space. Um, and the main reason for that is because we have access to all the Jackson Hole data and all the Telluride data, all, the, all that stuff that we work with. So we can't have an Altera employee working on that. So we kind of have a firewall there, if you will, and we maintain all that stuff internally. But we set a lot more resources now as well. So we've hired like over a dozen people since the acquisition is closed. I mean, our goal is really to revolutionize the digital guest experience in ski. And we now have seasoned leaders in the industry um, whose main goal is to help us sort out how to do that. And like I said, in fact, after this, I'm getting on a plane to Denver to, to go meet with those people to figure out what the next steps are. So uh... It sounds like you're really set up well for the future. So let's let's finish up this conversation today just by talking about the tech itself and, and what people will see. And that's kind of the exciting thing here, right? So what should we expect as skiers from a tech access experiential point of view into the future? Like what what are you excited about? What are you working on? What can you tell us? Yeah, so I'll tell you about the software a little bit, then I'll tell you about kind of a, the experience side of it. So like I said, in COVID, we were really thinking about why do guests have to stop somewhere in the base area? What's standing in between them and stepping out of their car, out of their hotel room, out of the plane and getting on the lift and made a lot of progress there, still more to do. Um, and now as we think about the future, we start to think about like, what are the reasons a guest has to call in? Um, and kind of wait on hold to get help. So maybe questions that they have about their bookings, minor changes they need to make, modifications to orders, things like that. So our goal really now is about building a platform that allows the guests to first book everything in one place. So your room, 
your lesson, your lift ticket, your rental, your activities, all that sort of stuff, which in a lot of places you can do now, but we need to bring that to more resorts. And then the next step there is we actually want uh, guests to actually be able to see everything that they've booked, which actually is not, believe it or not, is as is, is common um, as you think. So when you book now online, you get an email confirmation and it'll show you what you've booked, but there's no place in most ski resorts um, where you can log in and see a live view of what you've booked, especially in the context of a trip. So we in Aspenware right now, we have an order history and you can go see all your individual orders and see everything you booked, but you can't see, like when you book your big sky Christmas 2022 trip, a lot of guests actually book that in multiple orders. They first go on and they get their lodging and they get their lift tickets, the things that they need to secure to make sure they can actually go. And then later they'll add some lessons. Later they'll come in and add their rentals. Later they'll come in and add some tubing and they'll do that in multiple purchase purchases. But there's nothing that ties that together and shows you that in the context of your big sky Christmas 2022 trip. So um, an online itinerary and eventually the the opportunity to cross sell and upsell from there. So have you heard about this experience? Have you heard about this offering while you're there? And then lastly, eventually the ability to, to modify things. Like what are the reasons people call in 75% of the time? We're never going to cover 100%. There's going to be super complex reasons that people are going to need to call in to get some help for. But if your flight's delayed and you need to start a day later, or if you're having a great time and you want to stay another day, you should be able to do that online. So what I would say is from a tech software perspective, we want to support kind of two unique things. To, to, in order to make that happen. One is we want to make it as easy as possible to bring in different technology into the space. We really support that kind of best of breed concept. Gartner's a leading management consulting company that we pay close attention to, and they have this concept called composable commerce. It's essentially where you can compose a, an e-commerce experience using tech from different companies and different sources. Um, in the past, uh, the way we used to do things is if, if some resort needed like a fancy discount rule, some fancy discount promotion that the software didn't support, we'd scope it out. We'd figure out what it was going to cost to build. We would build it over a period of time. You test it, you release it, you fix any issues that it has when it goes out. And it was this kind of slow and expensive process. But there's companies out there that build discount rules engines um, and you can just plug into them use them and just integrate them really easily into the ecosystem. So we want to try to use third-party technology where it makes sense and not build all this custom code. And then lastly, and also we want to be able to support customizations for the resorts where it makes sense. One of the debates we always have all the time is, is there one best way to sell a lift ticket? Is there one best experience that we that's solvable out there in the world <laughs> to sell a lift ticket? And the answer is kind of yes and no. <laughs> and one of the reasons it's no is because different resorts see different behavior. Most major ski resorts have over 70% of their lift tickets booked within seven days of arrival. But many destination resorts that sell out um, and actually run out of tickets, there's a lot of resorts that are sold out for Christmas week now, those resorts people book 60 days out. That necessitate that difference between booking within a week and booking two months out necessitates a different experience um, and a, kind of necessitates a certain amount of customization. And then lastly, it all starts about data. Remember, you have all these different systems down there at the bottom. You have your ski system, you have your ski school, you have your food and beverage, you have your lodging system. In order to have a common experience up top where you can book everything in one place, see everything you booked in one place, you need to bring the data together for those systems on the back end um, so you can display it all in one place on the front end. So it sounds like you're really heading towards streamlining, simplifying, taking out unnecessary steps. And you said something interesting earlier, and that was that a surprisingly low number of people refill their RFID cards, which it does surprise me because they some resorts charge five bucks a piece for them, some don't. 
But I'm sure you saw Vail Resort's announcement in September that for the 2023 to 24 ski season, it was moving toward having Epic passes on folks' phones. And I think they're tapping Bluetooth for that. So what was your reaction to that? And are you working on something similar where it seems like the next step is just get rid of the media altogether? Yeah, I mean, honestly, just the logistics around getting media. So the ticket past the card in people's hands is it's a lot. If you book far enough in advance, you can mail your ticket out. Some resorts will deliver it to people's lodges. Really, you can stop at any ticket office, any point of sale to pick up your media and have it printed. Uh, but that now you're waiting in line. That thing that we're trying to avoid. We want get in the lift line. Don't get in the ticket office line. <laughs> That's really the idea. Right. Um, so um, pickup boxes. So like these little kiosks where you can scan a QR code and print your media. I think you've probably seen those popping up like wildflowers all over different resorts yeah. recently. Huge yeah, progress, amazing. huge, huge, huge mm-hmm. improvement um, in the experience out there. And everyone's installing those things now. Really great. Just get a QR code and we send your email confirmation or it gets sent to you a few days before you arrive. Hold it under the device. Tickets pop out. Get right on the lift. That's great. Yeah. I couldn't believe, Rob, how good those were. Oh, yeah. When I first saw one, I was like, oh, God, this is going to be a whole thing. It, it was amazing. They're pretty great. They're pretty seamless, you know, and uh, uh, it's it's they, they, they've, they've honestly been a game changer. But I mean, think about it. Everyone has a device in their pocket, right? You already, um, you have a ticket in your pocket, essentially. So, um, yeah, I have a lot to say about, say about this. I think it's, um, so BLE, so Bluetooth Low Energy is kind of the technology that Vail's looking at. And it's been kind of out there in the ethers a little bit. Um, we've actually been trialing Bluetooth Low Energy. And since last winter, we've actually been trialing BLE. Installed all new antennas in the gates last winter and just been trialing it with employees. Where it's at now, I would say, is like, so the analogy I give is I, years ago, I don't even remember how long ago this was, like 10 or 15 years ago, I bought the first Chromecast that ever came out. So Google released the Chromecast. You plug it into the HDMI port and you could cast to your TV. Um, bought the first one. It didn't work at all. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> um, you you could... It, right. Every once in a while, I get like a flicker up on the screen of what you were trying to cast from your phone. But fast forward to now, and through Apple TV, through Chromecast, through smart TVs, you can flip anything up there that you want um, through the AirPlay function or what, what have you, and it works perfectly. Bluetooth last winter was kind of in that early Chromecast stage. First of all, last winter, okay. you actually had to have an internet connection on your phone for the gate open. You had to have Wi-Fi or you had to have cell service. Um, And it actually went out to the internet and back around to the gate to let you in. This year, they've improved the technology so you don't have to do that. So it's really about two things, like this Bluetooth technology, which I think, again, it's going to take time. It's going to take trial and stuff like that to really nail it. It's about two things. It's about one, the phone has to work at the gate. You know, (laughs) so when you go up to the gate Mm -hmm. and you get scanned, it has to quickly, accurately recognize that it can't pick up the guy behind you or the gal behind you. And there's all kinds of challenges they face with that. So one is... Like if you also have an RFID media in your pocket because you just newly switched to the phone, it's going to fight with which one it picks up. And there's all that stuff to solve. The technology that everybody's using is Bluetooth Low Energy, BLE. But there's other interesting new tech that's coming out too. Ultra Wideband um, is another technology that's kind of interesting. And some of the challenges you face with the phone working at the gate is you think just like just use your Apple Wallet, right? You can't use Apple Wallet because Apple Wallet is that's called NFC technology and you have to do face ID for that um, or a secondary authentication. But you want to leave the phone in your pocket. So what you do is you download the resorts app 
there's a functionality that interacts with the Bluetooth on your phone and you can just leave it in your pocket. And it's just a little more challenging. Apple's a little easier to solve for than Android just because there's so many less devices. Android, there's so many different Androids that are out there that it honestly makes it hard to support all those the, the various hardware devices that are out there. So that phone working at the gate is the first part of the challenge. The second part is just the, the software, the activation workflow, if you will. So imagine mom goes online. She's the one with the account who books for the family. But in the account, they have the family. They have dad and their two teenage daughters who have smartphones. Mom goes on and purchases, and then she has to somehow get the permissions onto dad and the two teenage daughters' phones. They don't have logins or anything like that. So essentially what we build is this kind of share workflow. So first of all, there's an option kind of like Venmo or Snapchat where you can, where, where mom can just hold their phone up with a QR code um, and they can take a picture of the QR code and that downloads the permission onto, the, onto their phone. Or you can also share the permission using what's called the share screen. Like when you click to share something, and your iPhone pops up from the bottom and it's like, do you want to text this or email this or airdrop this? So we kind of use that as well to, to send a link. They tap the link, downloads it into the resort app and they're good to go. So I think it's just in the early stages right now. I'm not 100% certain if like this is the future, or if some other technology is going to be it. But I mean, everyone already has one of these devices in their pocket. It's a nightmare. It's not a nightmare, but it's a really big logistical challenge to get that media into everyone's hands. Everybody already has a phone in their pocket. If we can just use that, that's, that would be incredible. <laughs> and more incredible if everyone's phone stays on <laughs> and powered up throughout the day. And I know this is a big complaint among skiers as resort operators try to aggressively move trail maps from paper maps to to phone apps. And I think this is, this is an example of sometimes tech can get ahead of what the consumer is ready for or wants. I just don't think a trail map on a phone is a good experience. You know, especially if you get to a big mountain like Vail Mountain, which has several sides and it's kind of hard to get that context on a small device, but that's just me griping. So the, the, the reality is that when Vail moves Epic Passes to its phone and, and the company has said it will still give consumers the option of getting a physical pass, but there's going to be quite a few people who find themselves in Blue Sky Basin with a dead phone. So, so what are your thoughts on that piece of it? And, and I guess just phones in general. And, and I mean, I ski personally with a, with an extra battery in my pocket of my ski yeah. coat at all times. Just got to take a lot of pictures. I'm, you know, media, I, I need to have that thing operating, but you know, most people aren't going to do that. They're either not going to think of it or they just aren't going to spend the extra 20 bucks or they just don't want to carry the weight around. So, so what are your thoughts on phones and making them more re reliable and resilient to be good mediums, good, reliable mediums for tech. Yeah, totally. I mean, first of all, on the trail map thing, I actually share your sentiment there, believe it or not. So like I even, yeah. <laughs> um, the way yeah. I think about it is maybe an unpopular opinion, but when I go to a resort's website um, and they have like the fancy uh, interactive trail map where you can turn on the lifts and turn on the different runs, I don't, I actually don't really want to see that. I want to see the PDF of the actual trail map art. Yep, me too. That's what me I want too. to see. Yep, that's 100%. what I look for. So it's, it's kind of art, you know, and that's yep. what you want to see. You want to see the full yeah. thing as it was designed. I don't want to turn things on and turn things off. Anyways, but on yeah. a phone, I mean, okay, but like, but put that map on there, I guess, if that's what you're going to use. You can overlay GPS on it, which is kind of cool. But anyways, back to the real question, just like the Chromecast and stuff like that that didn't work, I think like cell coverage and like the service is one thing and the battery life's another Another. So with BLE, first of all, luckily, it's not the BLE itself that affects the battery life. The LE and BLE 
Bluetooth low energy stands for low energy. Um, it's not the BLE itself that kills the phone battery. It's all the other stuff you're doing on your phone. It's the tracking. It's the cold and stuff like that. And if the if you lose your battery, the BLE is not going to work, even though it's not the cause of it. So as far as like the, the cell phone service thing, I think native apps um, help you. So actually downloading a resort app can help. It already has a lot of the content that you need on there and it doesn't need a cell connection if you really do um, want to pull the trail map up. And plus coverage is getting every, every, better every year. I remember I used to go to A Basin and they used to have only have AT&T service. I had Verizon and zero bars. Uh, but I think last winter they added Verizon and T-Mobile and now it's five bars up on the continental divide. You know, so it can be done. Okay. But the Beautiful. battery, I mean, I expect it to get better and better like Chromecast. At the end of the day, I mean, keep your phone in your pocket, you know, like keep it close to your body, keep it warm. Who really wants to take their phone out on their lift? I mean, it's not what we're designing for. Enjoy the scenery, chat with your friends, keep your phone warm, and you'll you'll have a good time. All right, Rob, I, I want to be mindful of time here. I want to get your thoughts on two more things real quick before I let you go. Uh, one is just privacy and data, and, and obviously this has been, you know, a huge ongoing issue and politicians are starting to get involved and pass laws and they've passed some pretty restrictive laws in Europe that I'm sure you have to think about. So just talk about privacy and data kind of as one and and how you have to think about this and what you are doing to protect customers who maybe don't want to make sure that when they buy a lift ticket at Telluride, and I'm just picking an example out of the thin air, that they, you know, aren't going to end up on some email list for some boot company. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a pretty big deal here. And like you said, there's actually regulations that are coming down that are enforcing a lot of this. So in Europe, it's called GDPRs, the EU's kind of privacy law. There's similar ones in the U.S. California has the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act. Um, it's more about just accepting cookies. It's more about that, do you accept cookies? Um, there's actually requirements in there that at various levels of enforcement um, that require that um, if a customer wants your their data purged out of your system, they need to be able to reach out to you, request that purge, and you have to be able to do that across all those disparate and those various systems that you do, um, which is that's tricky. And that's a, that's a burden on resorts that use complex software like ski areas. But tech company, like, like resorts and tech companies can work with external vendors to get help. There's external GDPR privacy vendors that are out there. Um, we actually use some expertise from them as well that help you understand. We can't keep track of all the regulations and all that sort of stuff. So we rely on companies that do that. But I mean, I think that there's actually an opportunity here. Um, if you like really think out in the future, it's not just the Uncle Sam or the, the Europeans coming down and uh, making things harder, but there's an opportunity here. And like, and in the spirit of what we talked about before with kind of resorts working together, but their competitors are really other parts of travel. Like imagine this concept that you go to Deer Valley one year, you take lessons, you're a level six skier, you're working on bumps, you rented a length 173 ski, you like to dine on the mountain. Um, if you go to Deer Valley the next year, you better believe they're going to use that information to offer you a more personalized experience when you come next year. But what if you go to Aspen the next year? You know, they're they're an icon partner, but they're owned by a different company. It, should the guests be able to take that profile with them someday? Right now, it's considered that the, the resort owns that data. They have a big customer data, so they own the data. But doesn't the guests themselves have some claim on that data? They'll, they'll, they certainly have the claim, the ability to have it purged um, based on the, those laws that we talked about. But can they take it with them kind of like you'd retrust your chart from your doctor or something like that? So as you look into the future, it makes you wonder if like some new technology like like digital wallets, you know, like your Apple wallet. Could you download your skier profile into your Apple wallet 
bring it with you to another resort. And as long as they're playing in this tech ecosystem, um, you can kind of have that consistent personalized experience even as you go to other resorts. I think that's the real kind of a really interesting example that technology can bring that really allows resorts to work together, you know, um, as an industry um, and try to retain skiers and, and keep them keep them out there. Yeah, I, I love that idea, Rob. That's so cool. All right. Last thing for you here today. Talk a little bit about dynamic pricing. We've kind of gone away from the pricing grid where weekends and holidays are this price and weekdays are this price and skiing after five is this price. So talk about the evolution of dynamic pricing and how you help manage that. And sort of, are you still seeing resistance to that? I'm surprised there's a few big resorts out there that still don't seem to like it, yeah. which, which surprises me, but, but give us the, give us the overview of dynamic pricing. Yeah. I mean, dynamic, it's a, it's a key sales tool, but it's a, yeah, convincing some folks of that takes some time. Dynamic price, let's level set. What is it? So there's really, first of all, there's two main goals of dynamic pricing. One is to promote what's called scarcity. So book now, don't wait, don't book later, book now. <laughs> you know, like, um, oh my gosh, the price is going to go up. I need to book now. So that's scarcity. It's just a, a retail merchandising concept. And then also encouraging people to book on less popular days. Can it be used as a way to have your weekday prices be a lot less um, if we can tell that they're less popular um, than the weekends or something like that. So people book weekdays, book early, late season, disperse crowds, things like that. And there's also lots of ancillary goals. Um, there's actually a model out there where dynamic pricing can, I'm going to think about this here for a second. You can, If you do it right, you can actually decrease the average ticket price but raise the overall gross revenue that a resort can get. It's the ends, it's the extremes, you know? So the cheapest tickets are even cheaper and the most expensive tickets can be even more expensive. The concert and sports world has seen a lot of this. There used to be three prices in an arena, but in some case, what dynamic pricing means for an arena for a concert means is if there's 16,000 seats, there's actually 16,000 unique prices. Now the resale market's kind of screwed that up in a lot of ways and hopefully we never see that in ski, but beneath it, that model's there. So <laughs> dynamic pricing and Simplest form. So what is it? It's um, it's all about where you don't have a set price for each day of the winter, each time of the day. Old school pricing is just what you described. The price is set by your start date. So I'm skiing on December 26th for a full day. That was my price. Uh, maybe there was an in-person price and an online price, but that was the basic pricing back in the day. The next step of dynamic pricing is you also look at the date they're purchasing. So you look at when they're starting and you also look at when they're purchasing. How far in advance are they purchasing? Generally, tickets are cheaper the further in advance you buy. And then the next layer, when you, you can keep adding these different layers of complexity on here, the next layer is changing based on sales. So as more tickets are sold on a certain day or in a certain window or something like that, then the price changes. Um, and that's where you get that N5 tickets left at this price message when you're close to that next tier. And then the next level, which you don't see too much of in ski, to be honest, is perceived demand. So how many people are just looking at that product? How many impressions did it get? How many people have actually added to cart? Don't actually see a lot of that in ski, uh, but it actually is supported in some solutions that are out there. So how has this worked out? It's honestly definitely proven the ability to raise revenue for resorts. Like I said, you can actually, the cheapest tickets cheaper, the most expensive tickets more expensive, but the average revenue that a resort can take in actually increases um, with dynamic pricing and they can spend that on infrastructure and all that sort of stuff. And, but what's really interesting is we've actually seen resorts take dynamic pricings outside of just tickets, take it to lessons, take it to rentals, and it has really, really big impacts there. The jury's still out 
honestly, on the true effect of it encouraging people to ski on less popular days. Yes, some people are going to ski if the ticket's $40 on Tuesday over the $100 ticket on Saturday, but it actually, a lot of resorts have seen much less of that because you got to be at work on Tuesday. Much less impact of the actually dispersing the crowds as, as you've seen. But I think I think the, the biggest the, the biggest kind of mover that encourages people to book is really book now and not wait is truly if a resort's going to sell out. Like that's where we see, again, if a resort's selling out for Christmas week, that's where we see the 30 to 60 days kind of in advance purchases. But dynamic pricing, it's, it's it just seems complicated. It seems... Like it's going to be a lot of work to implement it. But again, there's companies like Aspenware and others um, that have a simple model where you can kind of plug that in. The prices all change automatically on the back end and all that sort of stuff. And it, it's, it, it actually provides more equity to the skiers, really, um, if you think about it, because of those lower prices that are available out there. I mean, it's really easy to implement if folks just, just give it a try. So it's all about, like I said, sometimes you have quick sales cycles. Sometimes you have long sales cycles. It's all about education. It's about getting out there at industry events and telling the story, getting on podcasts and telling the story and getting the message out. And uh, eventually everybody will come around. Well, Rob, I really appreciate all of this today. This was really interesting for me. I, I think this is this is not an area that I've gone into much on the podcast, but it's really so core to the lift served skiing experience that is really the whole, all that the storm talks about and all that we're addressing. So I really appreciate you sharing this insight with us. And, um, and I really wish you the best of luck. Congratulations on the big sale to, Thank you. to, uh, Altera and, and Aspen. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really curious to see how it works out in the future. So, Thank you very much, and I'll let you get on with your day so that you can go catch that flight. Yeah, thanks for having me, and you didn't, you didn't use the safe word once this entire time, so uh, maybe, maybe we did okay. <laughs> really, really appreciate the time, Stuart. Thank you. That's Rob Clark, CEO of Aspenware. Rob, thank you so much for that. It is really exciting to see skiing modernized, and I am so glad you agree with me that trail maps on phones are a horrible idea. Thank you all very much for listening. 2023 is going to be absolutely stacked. I have the leaders of Mount Spokane, Whitefish, Palisades, Tahoe, Seven Springs, Eagle Crest, Holiday Valley, Pacific Group Resorts, Saddleback, Whitecap, Heavenly, Breckenridge, Deer Valley, Whistler, Banff, Sun Peaks, and Stevens Pass, all booked on the Storm Skiing Podcast. Remember, the fastest way to get those episodes is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.